This is Nuri Shahin, and you are listening to the Yellow Wall Podcast. Welcome to episode 197 of the Yellow Wall Pod. As always, I'm your host, Stefan Butzko, and I'm joined by two very decent guys for yeah another, I don't know if jam-packed episodes, but uh, we have to discuss Borussia Dortmund's 2-0 win against Hertha Berlin, which still sees them top of the table after match day two. And of course, the whole Dembele scenario is finally over. The saga is complete. He has moved to Barcelona and... Today, Borussia Dortmund already announced his replacement in Andrei Yamolenko, and we will, of course, talk about that later in the show. And yeah, there's still a bit of transfer gossip floating around, which we will tackle with uh, Jeremy Tolia maybe coming in, maybe not, and Emre Moore maybe leaving, maybe not. So definitely here is, once again, Mr. Lars Polman. Hello, Lars. How are you doing? Maybe I'm doing fine, but maybe not. <laughs> okay, I I guess I guess the former it is as always, and Konstantin Eckner from Spielverlagerung. Hello, Konstantin. Yeah, as you introduced us as very decent, uh, I can only tell you, um, <laughs> Stefan, my very average friend. How is it going? <laughs> It's going mediocrely, as it should average. in your case. <laughs> Thanks for the uh, yeah, very pleasant. Anyway, uh, since it's only Lars and me from here on out now, Lars, uh, what are your thoughts on Borussia Dortmund's 2-0 win against Hertha Berlin? I was more impressed with the team's performance against Hertha than I was against Wolfsburg, simply because of the strength of the opponent. But uh, Peter Bosch wasn't. Yeah, and that's a good thing. But I guess we come, we'll come to that later. Um, no, we, we spent most of last episode talking up Hertha, or at least I did. Uh, how well they are coached, how well they yeah, are I, usually organized, and I think I chimed in. <laughs> yeah, so. and I, I and I think that still holds true. I think Hertha were decently organized. Um, not didn't allow too many clear cut scoring chances. I mean, Dortmund scored one uh, after a good move, and then one uh, wonder goal, which I think Nuri Shang will never again score for, with his right foot from outside the box. With a, a drop kick, or was it a, a true volley? I mean, that that just doesn't happen. Uh, I don't know if if the term drop kick actually exists in the English language. I think, I think that's that's, that's, a, that's the half German volley term. then. Yeah, I think I think the English people would call it a half volley in that case. But uh, certainly, to me, just because of the strength of the opponent, a more impressive victory. Um, I was very very impressed with the team's intelligence and intensity in counter pressing which uh, they didn't really need to do against Wolfsburg, who were uh, sitting deeper than Hertha, I felt. Um, you know, players like Mario Götze, who, who didn't really stand out in the creative department. He had some very good moments in counter-pressing with high access that uh, allowed others to shine. 
Uh, I think Don Axel Zagadou had two in incredible uh, counter pressing situations in the first half in in uh, opposing territory, one of which uh, caused the goal, the first goal. So, uh, yeah, I, I mean, it wasn't the brilliant performance uh, in terms of their creative output or anything. I mean, uh, as I said, they didn't create too many clear-cut scoring chances, but just uh, from the flow of the game and also the control over the game, uh, even though it was only two goals uh, for Dortmund. Uh, I never really felt as if Hertha could get back into the game. Uh, they didn't really have... Did they have one scoring chance that wasn't from an offside position? I don't uh, quite remember. So uh, certainly, in my opinion, uh, a more impressive uh, win than the one against Wolfsburg. But, uh, you know, both certainly more than I expected, you know, two or three weeks ago. Yeah, I think Roman Berkey had two uh, saves that were actually pretty good. One at the very death of the game where he was full stretched and then there was a really good reflex of the line when there was, I think, a corner directed by, I don't even remember by whom it was at his goal. That was also a very good save. But other than that, I don't remember shots on goal either from Hertha, although statistics tell me they had four of those their expected goals at 0.43 to Dortmund's 2.31 so I guess that tells us the story to some extent um Konstantin you were were so kind and wrote the uh, match report for yellowwallpot.com and uh, you said country for old men and uh, I guess we have to talk about Nuri Shine's performance and uh Dare I ask, um, will it be difficult for Julian Weigel to find back if Nuri Schein replicates a performance like this on a consistent basis? I mean, re reading my headline, you weren't uh, quite precise because I wrote country for an old man because there's only one. Um, although he's only... Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm sorry that yeah, it's just yeah, off sure. my head and I don't have it in front of me. Well, then you are unprepared. Uh, congratulations <laughs> for that. Uh, yeah, so... Old man, he's 28. I even wrote it in the article, but you can, we could maybe believe that, uh, Noe Shine is like 33 or so. Um, I, well, coming to your question, I don't think that, uh, Weigel will have a problem, you regaining his spot in the team, uh, because he's still the better player and he's also the player, the holding midfielder or, you know, deep line playmaker with more potential and with more promise for the future. Uh, via Shaheen, as we have discussed, uh, discussed on this show, has struggled a little bit here and there, uh, fitness-wise, and, you know, he wasn't there sometimes. He's still and will remain to be quite slow, um, but in this match, he made a lot of right decisions, uh, was there at the right time, in the right place, um, supported counter-press, which is impressive in his own right, um, especially... Um, it was important that he was there uh, behind the first and second line uh, when Dortmund tried to counterpress uh, Hertha. I mean, as we discussed, uh, counterpressing is one of the major components of uh, Peter Bosch's system and concept, technical concept. Um, so, yeah, Nuri Shahin did his job. Uh, and even more so, um, he scored a tremendous goal and he was there, was a leader. Uh, on the pitch. I mean, it's, it's interesting, uh, because in the build up plays, 
Um, normally the, the ball goes from Batra to Socrates, from Socrates to Batra, and maybe to, to one of the fullbacks, and, you know, from the fullbacks back to the center backs. Um, but the, the number six, um, so in, in this match, Nuri Shine isn't really involved in the build-up play, which wasn't even a bad thing, uh, actually, because, um, he had, he could focus, he was able to focus on other things, um, and wasn't there just to, you know, f- desperately find a spot uh, to be involved in the build-up play because you just, you know, you, you stood, um, 10, 15 yards in front of the back line and basically you was already thinking about counterpressing, already thinking about getting, uh, you know, being maybe the number four or number five within an attack, within a play. Um, so yeah, that worked out well. And I think, uh, it was a tremendous performance by him. Um, I also mentioned, I think in the, in the piece that Sagadu was impressive as well. Yeah. If, if I may make a couple of points on shine, what I find really impressing, uh, impressive is that when he tackles that morph and then not, uh, if he, yeah, dinks the ball away from an opponent, it usually lands on the feet of a teammate. Uh, which usually instigates a lot of attacks for Dortmund, and uh, yeah, is is very intelligent in in his tackling. And uh, yeah, also what I did like is that uh, something that Zagadou also showed, but Shine even more so, at least against Hertha, is that when he received the ball or snapped up a loose ball, that uh, he usually had an immediate solution to just flick it on to a teammate or so and to really, uh, yeah, have a transition game going and then make the play much quicker. And of course, we saw a couple of vertical plays from Shahin we would usually not see from Weigel. So I don't, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty sure, like you said, Konstantin, that Weigel in the end will, uh, yeah, get back into the position. However, uh, I think this Nuri Shine we saw against Hertha was significantly different from the one we've seen in last season, especially now that he has finally had a full preseason under his belt and I don't think there were any in any injuries or complications in between. Lars, your two cents on, on Nuri Shine? He was great against Hertha, but uh, the one thing that really bothers me at the moment is the revisionist history that's going on with Shaheen. I don't know if it's really just a thing in the German, you know, fan base and especially media or if that's also an international thing. But right now everybody's talking about Shaheen being so utterly important to Bosch and finally has a coach who gives him chances and, and all that. A, Shaheen only plays because Weigel is unavailable. I think uh, everybody has to agree with the fact that Weigel would very likely be the uh, starter at the start of the season had he been fit. And B, people are comparing apples to oranges because the shine we are seeing right now is one who, as you just said, Stefan, had about two months of a summer preparation to get ready for football or get back in football shape after uh, being in the shape of a football almost uh, for parts of last season. I think... um, Obviously, with uh, Shine being omitted from the cup final squad and, you know, some of the other sideshows with Tuchel, we can uh, fairly assume that uh, he and his former coach didn't get along too well, especially towards the end of uh, Tuchel's reign at Dortmund. But we shouldn't be acting like uh, this is the the player uh, Tuchel didn't use last season and, and chose Ginter ahead of, I think, 
uh, that kind of revisionist history is something that we shouldn't really be delving into. I think uh, the the player Shine is right now is far and away far and away better than the one that was omitted, for example, from the cup squad or taken off the field uh, 45 minutes into the Bremen match, if I'm not mistaken. So uh, I just wanted to to mention that because uh, Shahin is a well-beloved figure in the in the Dortmund fan base, and I think some people are uh, mixing some things up in, in, in this regard. Yeah, however, you can uh, <laughs> hear how his teammates and I think Shahin himself both underline that, uh, yeah, the trust by the coach uh, makes all the difference now, uh, I think. I, I have to quote actually written down on, on what Shine said. You can also just read it on uh, yellowwallport.com. And he said, every footballer lives on confidence and trust. It's not a crit criticism in parentheses on, to to on Tuchel or towards Tuchel, but I have the trust of the coach and I'm trying to show that on the pitch, the new role also suits me. I'm feeling very comfortable in that system. So yeah, I don't really buy it that it's not a, criticism towards Tuchel because in a way it obviously is and uh, yeah last as you already said maybe things would look a little different if uh, Julian Weigel was fit but he isn't and um, I think it's it's uh, very good news for Dortmund either way that with uh, Weigel being absent that yeah Shine is stepping up and definitely put in a man of the match performance against Hertha Berlin with an assist and a goal and uh, yeah otherwise pretty good match and we already uh yeah brushed upon Dan Axel Zagadou who I thought was uh also really good second best player maybe on the on the field I don't know uh Lars what made him stand out I'd say his calmness uh because it was a much uh, sterner test at least on paper than the one Wolfsburg offered even though um you know Herzer didn't really make use of their speed on the wings as we had predicted. Or I don't know if they didn't try because they were scared of counterattacks from Dortmund or if they just didn't really get their horses uh, sprinting on the field, if you like. Um, but certainly Zagadou's calmness stood out to me when he was under pressure, which wasn't too often. Uh, I mentioned earlier his prowess in counterpressing, which was really impressive because that's something you don't really do as a center back that high up the pitch. So for him, it's still a new position to see him have that kind of access uh, relatively high up the field was certainly a show of growth uh, in in a short time since he's been a, a left back for, I don't know, a month maybe. Uh, and, and certainly he'd also uh, played a few good passes as he did against Wolfsburg uh, without... What I didn't like against Wolfsburg, where he looked careless at times uh, in possession, he wasn't caught, I think, once uh, by Hertha, who I would uh, very much presume, because I do think they are very well coached, were uh, aware that uh, Zagadou doesn't have much experience and could potentially be flustered under pressure. So uh, I, I'd certainly put him up there with Pulisic as the second best player after Shine in the, in the match. Yeah, I think if if one play really stuck with me, it was uh, Zagadou basically playing a diagonal ball through the channels, which where he found, I think, Castro, and he then played it on to Pulisic, who then cut inside. And uh, yeah, only put it central on goal on Jarstein would have been an awesome goal had it gone in. However, I think that pass that really unlocked the entire header 
defense and yeah caught them almost blindsided that was just amazing and that's something we don't see often from our left back so um yeah kudos to dan axel zagadu of course it has to be mentioned that uh yeah there are a couple of defensive frailties let's say in his backtracking which are not at 100 yet but you know this kid is 18 so let's cut him some slack there um Konstantin, there was uh, Thomas Hennecke from Kicker who was uh, really annoyed with Hertha not being the Hertha he usually knows. He uh, said that they uh, did not have a, or did not commit a single foul in the first half and that is correct looking at the halftime stats sheet here where Dortmund had six fouls. Um, do you think that played a role that Hertha were maybe not as feisty and as rough and tough as they usually are? Well, I don't like the argument actually um, pointing at foul statistics because looking at the match, I mean, where were the areas they should commit fouls? Um, first, I mean, they stood relatively deep with uh, Bizovic and Darida as the first line in pressing. Um, so, I mean, they weren't, weren't really a factor. So they just, you know, stood right behind the halfway line. Um, and Dortmund... W- I mean, smartly um, figured out how to re- come through Hertha's um, formation quite quickly. So they, I mean, they closed the gap between Socrates and Batra and Oamiang and, and uh, other attacking players very quickly. So, I mean, if you commit fouls right in front of your own box, um, you shoot yourself in the foot. And I think Hertha, you know, didn't intend to do that. Um, so... I mean, where were the areas to commit fouls? Um, or what, what, what would have been the reason to commit fouls? Um, looking at how the match went uh, throughout the first half. So, um, I mean, of course you can make the argument, but that's something different, not looking at foul statistics, but you can make the argument that maybe Hatta's press was too deep. Yeah. They, they sit too deep. All right. That's, that's an argument you can make. Uh, but only, I mean, that's had something to do with confidence. And I think, um, Hertha wasn't really confident, uh, in their defensive abilities, um, to really put on a high press, which is also not a thing they do actually in, in most of their matches. Um, you know, to, to, um, execute a high press and, um, interrupt Dortmund's build up plays. So that's not what they do against average teams. So that's not what they, what they did against Dortmund, which is one of the best teams in the Bundesliga. So. I don't, yeah, I don't really like the argument. Um, and also like all this BS with foul statistics should be thrown out of the window. Yeah, that's maybe true. But I personally also felt that there was a, yeah, I don't know. Maybe, maybe Hatter's edge in, in their usual physicality was lacking a little bit. But, uh, yeah, foul statistics usually doesn't tell you too many things other than that uh, if you have a really high number of faults that it's maybe sometimes a very smart tactical measure you can use to disrupt the game but um, rem- remember just just one thing remember the first goal uh by Oami Young and um right be- right before the goal was scored uh, um by the way a beautiful cross by Nuri Shahin and right before Nuri Shahin got the ball uh, Sagadu went basically through one of the Hatta players I don't really remember who it was but he went through it through him um so I mean you can be you can try as hard as you want um to be physical uh <laughs> Sagadu will be stronger than you and he will just murder you which he did 
right? Yeah, that that's very true. I mean, uh, he's one big unit, and uh, yeah, that that's that's another positive that adds to his already very intelligent play that he can also just use his body to win duels even on top level and even against the otherwise physical side like Hertha Berlin. Um, Lars Michael Sox said, uh, "I don't I don't know if you would." I don't know if remarkable, but maybe in, in Sork's case it is remarkable because he rarely highlights players like that uh, because he said uh, to Aktuelle Sportstudio, Ober is a top guy. It's great to see how hard he worked for his team today and showed a top performance. I also see that in every training. I have to honestly say I love him. I love this player and I'm happy that we have him. Uh, I don't. I don't uh, remember the last time Michael Sorg pledged his love for a player. But uh, do you think after the whole Dembele saga that was just something Michael Sorg had to get out there? Yeah, I'm. I'm actually pretty sure he meant I love the guy more than I love Pierre Emerick Aubameyang, the striker. Uh, certainly because. In this game, Aubameyang didn't do much besides score a it, it, either a, a brilliant goal or a rather lucky one because I'm still not certain he actually wanted to brush the ball into the goal the way he did it. But uh, as you alluded to, uh, I think the question was also geared at um, Aubameyang wanting to leave but still performing well, whereas Dembele, whom we'll talk about in a moment, uh, chose the thermonuclear approach of not uh, being available to his teammates in, in training and in uh, competitive matches. So I think it was more about the fact that Aubameyang uh, remained very professional, even though people always think of him as, as a bit of a freak, maybe, uh, as opposed to what Dembele did. So um, I don't, I mean, I, I didn't see anything in the performance against Hertha, at least that would make uh Talk professes love for Aubameyang, the striker. So it must be about uh, off the off the pitch, or you know, not not necessarily only on the pitch uh, behavior. I don't know. I actually can see it or could see it a little bit from where Talk is coming from. I don't know if it was as visible on TV as it was uh, in the stadium, but Aubameyang really did put in a really industrious shift. I don't know. I have I don't have the the yeah, numbers of runs in front of me, but uh, yeah, he did put in a lot of work, although he was hardly involved, but still, yeah, pressed high and uh, often and yeah, never really gave up on any ball. I think that was that was actually good to see from an Aubameyang who yeah really struggled to to get involved with the ball, and yeah, that finish as you said was class and maybe at the same time. Um, Konstantin Peterbosch was not happy about Dortmund's possession play. He bemoaned that uh, Dortmund did not move the ball around quickly enough. Um, is this a criticism of an overcritical coach who uh, aspires, yeah, top level, or is there really criticism to be made right now of this Dortmund side not being quick enough in their possession play against Hertha Berlin? Well, to give an accurate answer we have to know what his actual plan um as far as ball possession and build up play go is and we don't really know it right now 
Um, the the thing I observed uh, throughout the match was that when Dortmund was uh, was doing the usual thing, you know, playing um, basically between or having some passes between uh, Bartra and Socrates and and Sagadu and a piece check between between those four. Uh, sometimes there wasn't there wasn't heavy uh, there was a heavy touch by uh, piece check for instance, and then you know he had to uh, use a second touch to play the ball back to one of the center backs. Um, so I mean sometimes these little mistakes can interrupt the flow of a build up play, and maybe that was one of the things uh, Bosch didn't like about Dortmund's performance. You know regarding the build up play regarding the the ball possession. Um, but overall, I mean I think they. I mean, it, Dortmund looked like they did what they are, were, were supposed to do, um, and which is, you know, which is actually a good thing. So maybe he was just overly critical. Um, what, what was also obvious is that, uh, I mean, there are there's a lot of there's a lot of room for improvement, um, uh, you know, regarding ball possession and, and build up plays. But uh, when Dortmund was was entering uh or after they have they've entered the um, final third i mean you could just see that the creativity you know among Pulisic, Götze and all these guys is just tremendous i mean normally and that's also that's like an, an uh concept that Pep Guardiola uses and i mean we, we know that Peter Bosch is inspired by by coaches like Guardiola um that i mean you you've try to figure out how, how to set up plays and the first three four moves but when it comes to uh, playing in the final third normally it's just you know you you play on football iq instinct technique uh vision of your players you know it's something like that decision making um it's not really that you don't really have a plan you don't really draw some lines on a chalkboard um explaining what you what you have to do in the final third so it's it's a good thing it's on the on the plus side on the positive side that Dortmund uh, has enough players up front who know uh what they should do or they know how to how to act up front uh, in the final third so that's a good thing i mean now it's it's up to Bosch and his players to figure some things out how to break down opponents maybe more effectively but against Hertha, a deep sitting team, uh, as we discussed before, deep four four two, um, you know they found ways to get through the uh, Hertha formation, um, you know, frequently. So especially until the I don't know sixtieth minute or so. Um, so I don't know if if you should criticize your team right now. I mean, we, we watched the preseason, we analyzed the preseason. It wasn't like uh, Peter Bosch. You know, really focused on build-up plays right there. So maybe the international break and the upcoming weeks are time for him to, um, you know, try to teach his team how they should, you know, improve the build-up play. I don't know. Well, the seven guys that are still around by then. Um. <laughs> really, I've I've heard, I've heard most of them are uh, in, at Dortmund during the international break, actually. I don't I don't know. I'm just uh, quoting Daniel Stolpe, one of the press offices. But I don't know if that's ac accurate. But um, any anywho, um, sp speaking of uh, things they may have focused on during their preseason last, Lukas Bischek said that uh, they put a lot of focus on trying to prevent counterattacks from happening, and he also joked that when he pulled that shot from distance, which went yeah, I don't know, in into the yellow wall over the ball net or, so or somewhere, he said he just wanted to prevent a counterattack. That of course was. Just a joke. However, uh, you already pointed out that you can't really remember too many scoring opportunities from Hertha and definitely hardly anyone from open 
play and I guess none from counterattacks. So um, Dortmund, of course, sit top of the table and the one difference right now to Bayern Munich is that they have two clean sheets. Um, looking at Dortmund's defensive game, and I think that's uh, really important going forward, of course, uh, do you think there are improvements already to see over Thomas Tuchel where Dortmund were often caught out from counterattacks? Or do you think that other teams will just do more damage than Hertha and Wolfsburg? Yeah, I think it's too early to make that kind of judgment. I mean, at the end of the day, they played at Wolfsburg and at home to Hertha. That's not two opponents who will score too many goals uh, against a side that is dominant like Dortmund. That's just not their their playing style. So, um, I, I that's. It's almost the same argument for me as the one uh, I made about Shahin earlier. It's uh, it's a bit revisionist history to call out uh, everything Thomas Tuchel has achieved at Dortmund uh, on the back of two two wins in 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 very much winnable Bundesliga fixtures. Um, I think it's too early to make that kind of assessment, um, even though they've looked good. Um, they've not made too many mistakes. And as we talked about last week, the intensity seems to be at a pretty good level at the moment. But I think it wouldn't be too difficult to, to pick out two games like this under Tuchel last season and certainly in, in Tuchel's first season. So uh, one thing where they will improve, in my opinion, and, and that's something we haven't talked about yet, is uh, just personnel-wise uh, in defense, uh, it, it makes a huge difference having Ömer Toprak as the third center-back as opposed to uh, Sven Bender, who's never available anyway, and Matthias Ginter. Uh, so when, when Toprak came on at half, shortly before halftime, uh, against Hertha, nobody, I think, expected a huge drop in performance. Uh, certainly I didn't, because at the end of the day, I would actually rate Toprak higher than, uh, Socrates. So, uh, when he came on, there was no panic involved for anybody, I think, as opposed to when someone like Ginter had to come on, uh, last season. There was certainly more anxiety. Uh, yeah, the very first uh, <laughs> games with the Ginter Bartra partnership were just terrible. There was it, just headless chicken defending all over the place. Yeah, so just with that, they they might uh, improve their defensive record, but I would be weary of making uh, that a difference between Thomas Tuchel and Peter Bosch. I think it's it's never fair to. Uh, to coaches to compare entirely different situations uh, to each other. So I, I just won't do that. Yeah. Yeah. One, one, sorry, Stefan, one, one quick thing before we maybe move on to Dembele, Yamulenko, et cetera. Um, I don't like that people always point out that Dortmund were never defensively stable under Tuchel because it's just not true. Uh, they conceded 11 goals in the second half of the 2015-16 season, which is a Bayern Munich level uh, of defensive output, if you like. So, uh, of course, they conceded a lot at Liverpool, which was their downfall in the Europa League. But that one game seems to be too pertinent on people's minds. Uh, I think conceding 11 goals in 17 Bundesliga matches is, is damn right stable. So uh, another point of revisionist history I don't like. Certainly. And um, although we're not previewing the Freiburg match yet, I would already make the point that uh, although Freiburg lost pretty heavily in the end against Leipzig in the first half, they showed really well how they can free themselves from a very intense pressing. And that is a quality I think Freiburg 
has to some extent that teams like Hertha and Wolfsburg do not have. And so, you know, I would say let's wait and see until uh, after the international break how things look. Although even after three match days, it's still too early to make <laughs> big picture assessments. However, I think this will be a different test because although Hertha have a higher quality than Wolfsburg, they played a bit similar. So um, yeah, it will be interesting to see, at least for me, how Dortmund will fare if they yeah, meet the side that actually wants to be a little bit more active and wants to see the ball a little bit more and uh, how Dortmund yeah, can defend if a team actually manages to move around their pressing, which uh, we are yet to see. But I predict, and we've seen it with every pressing team, there is always going to be a team that can unlock it and even if it's one or twice to score a goal. Yeah, Konstantin, any final thoughts on Borussia Dortmund's 2-0 win over Hertha Berlin? Um, actually not, no. All right, cool. Then, uh, yeah, Dortmund go into the international break. Top of the table. Um, Konstantin, maybe one or two sentences on why Schalke could, after beating Leipzig so well, not replicate, replicate that against Hanover? Um because Hanover just, you know, offered something Tedesco couldn't find an answer to, um, which was um, switching formations in between the match um, repeatedly, uh, moving around the, the holding midfielder Anton all the time, uh, which was an answer to Franco Di Santo's movement, um, him dropping back and, and picking up balls. Um, yeah, so that worked out actually pretty well. Uh, also, Hannover had a pretty intense high press. Um, I mean, the goal by Hannover, um, the uh, goal by Jonatas, um, you know, was caused by an high press and then misplaced pass by uh, Tilo Kerr. So, yeah, I mean, Hannover, I thought uh, prior to the season that they would be, you know, uh, bottom of the table. Probably, or at least, you know, in the relegation battle all the time. Maybe they will end up being in the relegation battle. I mean, two, two match days to nothing, 32 to go. Uh, but that was quite impressive against Schalke. And yeah, there was one thing I was a little bit concerned about regarding Schalke. Um, you know, I think that the, the basic system they have. Um, it's, it's actually pretty good that I think a lot of players fit the roles they should, uh, or they are right, right now into. Um, but, um, if a, if a team like, not, maybe not Hannover, but if a, if a pretty good team, um, offers something awkward, something unusual, um, it will be up to the players and the desk to, f to, uh, adjust. Um, and find answers and against Hannover they weren't able to. I mean, he, he did some things. He, he changed, uh, the formation. He moved, hurried the, the right winger back. Um, so that he played alongside Goretzka in front of Ben Taralab. So they had like a, a one more line, which is actually in football. Uh, the more lines you have, uh, most of the time, the better, uh, your formation is. Um, it's over, of course a little bit more complicated than that. Um, so I mean, there was something, and Conor Bianca and, and Franco Santo played before them, so so there was no, so Hannover wasn't able to uh, defend as man oriented as he did in the first half, in the second half. So there were a few things they did, but at the end, you know, one, one mistake um, um, by, by Schalke, and they lost 
even one point. So you're saying that uh, Tedesco was outcoached by Breitenreiter? That's not what I said. But uh, <laughs> thank, uh, thank you, Mr. Yellow Press journalist. <laughs> yeah, it's it would be a bit I ironic, but that's really? what I that's what it, I it, it, it interpret. Wasn't that ironic font. That's yeah. Well, that's what I interpret from from you saying that uh, Hanover had formations and systems that Tedesco could not answer, and since he had the better squad, for me, that's being outcoached. However, yeah, very interesting to see that Schalke, after being praised so much on match day one, looked very, very mediocre on match day two. Of course, we don't know where their development is going to, but I guess for many Borussia Dortmund fans, it was quite funny to see them lose on match day two against Breitenreiter and uh, the other guy, his lookalike, whose name I just forgot. Horst Held. Horst Held. Thank you, Lars. And uh, yeah, I don't know how to make the segue from Horst Held to Yamolenko, <laughs> but um, I guess we have to in, in some way. Lars, your first thoughts when Borussia Dortmund finally unveiled Yamolenko after pursuing him for the last two years? I was a bit surprised to learn that they were after a player so dissimilar to Dembele. I was assuming, like most everyone, going by the names the media had uh, thrown into the into the play as potential replacements for Dembele, you know, uh, Jason Martins of Sporting, um, Malcolm of uh, Gironde Bordeaux. I mean, they those are players somewhat similar or in case of Martins very similar to Dembele you know the the quick feet uh, dribblers if you like and then they go out and sign someone with a, a lot more directness and you know brute force a 6-2 mauler of an attacker who might actually be uh, Dortmund's second best striker uh, straight away too so uh, I was a bit surprised to learn uh, that Uh, they went for such a player, but I certainly think Yamulenko is a good player. I don't know exactly how he will fit in at Dortmund. Um, he's, in, in my opinion, I know Konstantin disagrees with that, uh, more of a true right winger uh, who often cuts inside and uses his cannon of a left foot to release shots. Uh, a poor man's Robin, you say? Yeah, and that's, I mean, that's, that's actually a problem, but yeah, we will talk about it. I, I, I mean, uh, not every player who cuts in from the right wing can be likened to Iron Robin, but if you want to do that, go ahead. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm just asking. Yeah. And I know why you're asking it, but, uh, doesn't, I, I mean, watching a 6-2 striker, uh, winger, hybrid, whatever, uh, doesn't really remind me of slight, often flying Iron Robben, but that's, uh, I guess, another debate. So ultimately, uh, the the thing that surprises me the most beside, you know, the fact that he's not really similar to Dembele is his age. He's going to be 28 in less than two months. So he has very little, if any, resale value, which Dortmund usually care about. Uh, they haven't really signed someone in that age group for that kind of money, you know, a reported fee of 25 million. Uh, I made that point on Twitter and people pointed uh, to Gonzalo Castro and Toprak and even Schürrle. But, you know, Castro and Toprak 
uh, cost less than 25 million together uh, because of release clauses. And obviously they have vast experience in the Bundesliga and Schürrle was younger and a special case because of the familiarity with Tuchel. Now they are adding someone who's going to be 28 and doesn't speak the language, doesn't really speak English as, as far as I know. I think uh, he, he has said in interviews that he started learning English a few years ago when it seemed uh, every window he was going to make the jump to either an English side or maybe even Dortmund, as you alluded to earlier, they were after him both in 2015 and 2016. But, uh, you know, uh, certainly f from those two aspects, they they kind of deviated from the targets that I would have presumed uh, they were going after. So I was surprised. But at the end of the day, I think he is a good player and you can't really have too many of those. Lars, one follow-up question, considering that it's really late in the window and uh, Dortmund just earned themselves a major payday. Do you think 25 million is a good transfer just in financial terms? Do you think they overspent or they yeah, made even a bargain? What What's your assessment on that? Uh, in this day and age, 25 million for a potential starter at a Champions League club is not overspending in any way. The one thing I would say is that he was on a fairly large contract in Ukraine. Uh, our friends of Football Grad, I think, said something to the extent of five million dollar a year, uh, which uh, is uh, after tax in Ukraine, as far as I know. So he would have to earn something along the lines of nine to ten million to make that in Germany, and that would put him right close to the top of uh, Dortmund's wage bill so i i'm actually presuming that he uh, isn't earning quite as much at dortmund as he was at uh, dinamo because i really can't see dortmund signing someone and then putting uh, that player straight up there with the likes of marco Reus and whoever else earns a lot of money at dortmund yeah manuel fit on, on football grad actually pointed out that there's an interesting story that uh, Yamolenko was promised to leave uh, I think in in the winter of 2016 or so after uh, Dynamo Kiev won the championship but then uh, yeah they kept him against their own promise and uh, basically slapped a very decent contract on him to uh, make up for breaking that promise and uh, now he finally yeah made that made that move and I don't know if, if it's noteworthy or not, but uh, basically in his first or second sentence when arriving at the club and in his uh, official statement, he, he thanked Dynamo Kiev officials, the board, uh, yeah, for coming through in the end and uh, allowing him to make that dream move. So um, with that being said, Constantine, what are you making of this move? Is this a good deal for you do you think Dortmund could have done better or worse <laughs> oh sure you can always do worse than uh, signing Yamolenko uh, but you could have done better maybe maybe not I mean it is, it's like a matter of context in this as always I guess uh, I mean the situation was that, that Dembele was basically gone and uh, Dortmund had to find someone right now um, and I think, I mean, of course, I also saw the names like Malcolm uh, of Girondin, for instance, like pretty interesting player, but maybe it looked like that would be a 
very complicated thing to um you know pull him to Dortmund uh, before the end of the transfer window so maybe it was also the decision to sign someone who is who's you know who's ready you know he's already use a made product um not someone you have to develop so um Yamolenko is a player you can i mean of course also considering language barriers and, and stuff like that but normally you should be able to firm in there and he should perform at at least a decent level you know right from the start and if everything goes well then he should be a pretty big asset at least for one or two seasons um so maybe there was this um you know the thought behind the decision to sign him instead of uh, another project um because up front you or in the tech department you got Pulisic who is a young player still developing still rough around the edges you got Philip who's a young player you know same attributes um you got Royce who is injured you got Schuler who is injured and just not good right now um so I guess maybe adding to Pulisic and and Philip and also to Götze who's you know who's kind of kind of great right now but also not stable um so adding someone like Jan Molenko so a more matured experienced player um isn't maybe the worst decision you can you can make uh, at this point and also as Lars mentioned in this day and age and 2017 25 million normally you you only buy you know the reserve players of uh some mediocre era DVZT um teams you buy those guys for 25 million nowadays um so yeah financially i think it was a pretty good deal um now going forward i'm really interested uh which position you will play most of the time because on twitter i i wrote and a lot of people responded to it i wrote that i think you will play on the left side or left wing or maybe i should have phrased it differently i would prefer to see him playing on the left side um, Why? As opposed to what he normally does playing on the right side as a left footer, inverse winger, cu- you know, cutting inside and then shooting. Because I think the entire concept of him cutting inside all the time and, and you know, t- taking shots is ridiculous. Um, al- although I have to say he's, he's one of the best sh- shooters, uh, in the Bundesliga right away. Um, but still, that's, that's not how it should work, especially against deep sitting teams. Um, and Dortmund mostly faces deep sitting teams. Um, and also because it would, uh, disrupt the partnership between Götze and Pulisic. And, um, because right now it, it's, uh, Götze is a left side, a center midfielder and Pulisic is a right winger. So you got a little bit space behind, between, uh, between those two when Götze uh, plays passes to him. There's more dynamic between both. Uh, if you have a little bit distance. So when Pulisic receives the ball, he can, he is already, you know, moving forward. And uh, more dynamic uh, when he picks up the ball and then goes into the box most of the time. Uh, while uh, if he would be on the left side, uh, close to Götze, you have to rearrange a lot of things um, at this point. So I would prefer to see Lyomolenko on the left side, basically not as a left winger, more as a as a shadow striker on the left. Because if Götze moves slightly to the right, uh, interacting with Pulisic, you got a little, a little bit space in the left half space. And, you know, you have an open lane for Sagadu, who's just a monster moving forward. Um, and then uh, Yamalenko has still the option to cut outside and then shoot also with his left foot uh, from a different angle, but uh, still using his left foot sometimes, but not all the time. I also think you have to restrict him a little bit that he doesn't shoot 
too much, too often. Um, so yeah, that's my thoughts on him, I guess. But actually, he's pretty powerful. As, as Lars mentioned, he's, he's a brute force and um, a little bit of an unusual type of winger, actually. And he could also play as a number nine, you know, picking up some time there because Aubameyang can't play very much. Yeah, it's. Uh, I think that's a really good point you make there. That uh, yeah, he's a very feasible option as a striker. I mean, he is wearing that number nine shirt, <laughs> which gives just to just to f around with uh, more. Actually. Yeah, which yeah. already drops a major hit on uh, Emre Mors' future. But um, Lars of obviously wanted to talk about Usman Dembele. <laughs> I don't know. I'm, I'm I'm sure he does not, but I'm gonna make him now. Uh, Lars. Now that the whole saga is finally over, what do you make of the move in the end? And um, maybe the communications around it, apparently um, Usman Dembele at his news conference today said that it, his, that it was his mistake, but he thought that the deal was going through anyway. So um, that being said, do you think that there should be some sort of punishment Uh, for a player who was uh, basically going on strike and then saying that he was confident of uh, having his way with it? Well, I think uh, punishment, if there's any to come, has already been uh, doled out. Uh, <laughs> By the one-hour delay, that, you mean? <laughs> that that might be uh, part of the, the hold-up today. Uh, I think uh, he was about to be Uh, presented to the fans inside Camp Nou and it, it took like an hour longer because of some papers missing so I wouldn't be be shocked to learn that yeah that was Dortmund's fault quote-unquote that yeah yeah story's I, already I, I don't think I don't I don't know if it was really a fault or if uh, negotiations about the release out of his old contract maybe uh Maybe there was something in those negotiations about a punishment in terms of, uh, you know, the, the last paycheck or anything. I don't know about that, but I wouldn't be shocked to learn that because I'm, uh, I'm, I'm fairly certain they, they have made some efforts at least to, uh, make him pay, if you like, literally, uh, for staying away from team training for like two weeks now, uh, until the deal was uh, finalized. But, Even if it doesn't come to that, uh, I think financially the 105 million up front and what was it, 42 and a half or so uh, in bonus payments, most of which, according to both media reports and uh, Watzke, easily obtainable for Dortmund. So it's probably something that has to do with numbers uh, of appearances, number of goals and like a top three or four finish for Barcelona, which I guess is pretty much nailed on. Uh, with that that money coming in, it's probably something uh, somewhere around 135 or so million, and then the rest is more uh, up for grabs with with some less likely to be earned uh, bonus payments. But you know, I think with the the hands of Dortmund being forced by Dembélé's childishness, if you like, I think. Financially, they probably got what they could. And even if they didn't, it was probably in the best interest of all three parties involved to get this transfer over the line. So ultimately, uh, even if possibly they could have gotten like 10 million more, I think uh, that, that that's not really something uh, you can argue with when you make 135 or so million for a player who you've 
only spent one year with and make an what 85 million or so profit on him i guess that's negligible if if you don't get every last uh, cent from barcelona so uh, at the end of the day i think it's it's for the best that it's now over and one one last thing maybe on Yabulenko. i am impressed with the way they reacted so swiftly obviously uh, when michael zorg told uh, sportstudio in germany on saturday that maybe they did the homework before uh, agreeing to sell Dembele in the end. He was obviously referring to having largely, if not entirely, uh, brokered the deal with Dinamo and uh, Yamolenko. So that was something that impressed me and also the way that, that it went down relatively quietly. I mean, yesterday, uh, on Sunday, rather, the there were, there were like two or three reports from Ukraine and then in, uh, late in the evening kicker, confirmed the news but there wasn't really a lot of uh, smoke around Yamolenko to Dortmund this time around so uh, I, I'm surprised that in this day and age in this heated transfer market there's always the possibility for a club like Dortmund to work in the shadows and present a presentable solution so uh, that's that's certainly something I, I found rather impressive. Yeah me too especially if you yeah, realize how many third parties are involved around such a transfer and that uh, usually only takes one or two persons uh, to open their mouth and the information gets leaked and then, yeah, it's all out there and on, on the internet. So, yeah, good to see that uh, it yeah basically was a deal from the shadows, if you want, <laughs> if you want to say it like that. Um, Constantine, do you think... In the end, it was the right call to let Dembele go to even put him on the market, or do you think Dortmund um, and Watzke said it himself that uh, Dortmund, of course, are stronger with Dembele that uh, his absence will be will weaken them in a sporting sense that uh, yeah they basically passed on their sporting ambitions and got the money, or do you think they did everything right? Pretty tough to answer, actually. Um, of course, from sporting perspective, I mean, it probably would have been better to keep him. But on the other hand, like, he was really, he was really childish. Um, so I don't know how he would have performed, um, in the black and the yellow jersey, um, from now on out. Um, although there was, you know, there's the, um, World Cup on the horizon. So, I mean, I don't know if he want, wanted to, Close chances there so yeah it's it's pretty pretty tough yeah to but the I mean, question is Dortmund actually negotiated with Barcelona right because Dembele went on strike literally the the day after that but Dortmund could have also just said no we're not ne negotiating this player is not for sale maybe you know he wouldn't have gone on strike then just just throwing that in there do you think Dortmund maybe should have just from the beginning said no, we will not negotiate. Or do you think it was just a special situation of that much money being involved and uh, there's a good chance they're not having such a big payday the next year that they were saying, okay, uh, if you really pay, you know, a big chunk of that money, we'll negotiate with you. I mean, the problem is also that um, when they started negotiating with Barcelona, which, you know, Barcelona offered a tremendous amount of money right away, um... I don't really think they expected Dembele to go on strike. 
because it isn't the first time that they, you know, negotiate with a club about um, a potential move of one of the key players. I certainly believe that Dortmund has already negotiated with one or two or three clubs about an Aubameyang move. I, I mean, and with negotiating, I mean, you know, talking to the other club and, and you know, maybe just you know, asking what, what, you know, how much money they maybe would offer us, stuff like that. I mean, there was, there, I mentioned it before, there wasn't, I think, there was an Economist article that uh, most of the negotiations today go on uh, or take place on WhatsApp. So I don't know, maybe the WhatsApp uh, a little bit, you know, between Watzke and, and the Barcelona guys and, and stuff like that. I mean, it's just, you know, I don't think they expected uh, Dembélé to go on strike. And you shouldn't as a club. I mean, you should have some faith in your players and, you know, believe that, I mean, we, we will listen to the other club, but we don't expect you to just, you know, behave like a nine-year-old, which Dembélé did. Yeah, I guess that's that's a fair assessment in the end. Uh, I personally think Dortmund just should have kept Dembele and not even put him out for sale. However, uh, there are just as many good arguments to be made why they should have sold him. So um, yeah, I'm I'm actually a bit on the fence, but I would tend to uh, keeping him. Um, of course, now Dortmund have spent 25 millions, but they still have some cash in their pockets. Lars, will they go and spend the, I guess, 8 million or so fee for Jeremy Tolian instead of waiting a whole season to get him on a free? Will they? I don't know. Should, Should they? they? Yes. <laughs> Probably. I don't really know either because I'm, as we talked about, I think two weeks ago, uh, I'm not too keen on Tolian. I think he's a bit overrated after the under 21 euros. Uh, I don't think he's someone who will be able to start for the next five, six years for Dortmund. He's more of a backup player at a club like Dortmund, I believe. Um, but certainly he's better than both Eric Dorm and Felix Paslak. So if the, if the question is, do you, uh, improve getting in Tolian and letting Paslak leave on loan, um, I think the Dorm situation with his failing medical at Stuttgart has probably been delayed for uh, four or five months until the winter transfer window opens. Um, if, if that's the question, and I would say yes, so I would certainly uh, advise them to spend 8 million euros on a player that improves the squad at more than one spot because they, he also would be the pr primary, I would think, backup for Marcel Schmelzer, even though, as we talked about earlier, Zagadou has done really well at left back. So, uh, yeah, ultimately... If they can get Paslak playing time on loan without uh, agreeing to, you know, a, a buyout option or anything like that, it's a deal I would make, but I'm not confident they will actually do it because it seems that Nagelsmann, uh, Hoffenheim coach Nagelsmann doesn't really want Paslak, uh, which I can understand because uh, Paslak is not a player who will improve Hoffenheim at the moment. I think his level is a bit lower. I wouldn't be. Uh, against loaning Paslak to the second Bundesliga, actually, uh, just so he gets playing time. So uh, w with that being unlikely, it seems, uh, at the same time, it's also unlikely that Toyan will come in. All right, fair enough. Um, I I don't know. I think I think they actually will spend the cash. I don't know. There's just a feeling 
which I cannot explain. So um, before we go out of the door, one last word on Emre Moore, Constantine. Uh, goodbye. <laughs> All right. <laughs> I don't know. I kind of I kind of expected that answer. Um, I mean, you said one word uh, on Emre Moore. Yeah, well, but I also asked you for one or two sentences on Schalke, and you went on a five minute rant. So well, you said one or two sentences, so you opened the box of Pandora. <laughs> <laughs> yeah well i i guess goodbye is the uh overall uh topic here he is supposed to leave now for celta vigo after uh deals with inter and fc torino did not come off apparently so basically um, with the comp complete italian league they had uh, some sort of deal going on that emmermore will join them yeah i don't know i mean he had to fire his agent in in between um I, I guess in the end it's a good move for Dortmund because Emre Moore I personally do not see having a future um, just because the competition on his position just uh, means he will not have the playing time that he needs to really develop because um, we can all see his raw talent but uh, we also see uh, that he has a huge lack of uh, footballing IQ when it comes to passing and uh, yeah, playing the ball to to an opponent, but also just uh, yeah, the overall tactical awareness of where to position himself, when to run, when not to run, and and stuff like that. I think there's just too much work to be done for Dortmund to um, yeah, get him into a place where he can actually be of value on the long term. Of course, he had a couple of deciding matches in the Dortmund shirt, uh, I guess most prominently for Real Madrid. But uh, other than that, maybe a loan deal would make sense. I don't know. I think it's going to be a permanent deal, though. Um, yeah, that Yamolenko grabbed the number nine is already a big hint of uh, where things are going. So, um, yeah, it's a shame. But, uh, you know, I wouldn't be too sad about it as a Dortmund fan, considering Christian Pulisic and, and others are still around and uh, doing just fine. So, um, yeah, I get the argument that with Dembele out, you could have kept more, but I, I don't know. I just think the Dortmund fit midfield is too, cr too crowded right now. So, Lars, unless we have missed anything to mention, um, you can tell our listeners now where they can find you on the internet, and then I guess we can sign off. Yeah, I don't really know that we missed anything crucial so people can just follow me on twitter at last polman where if we did they can also uh, point to my ignorance if they like <laughs> all right uh, same goes for me you can find me at stefan butzko and my written work on espnfc and constantine where can people find you on Twitter under cc underscore ECKNER. And of course, they can check out beforelaron.com. Perfect. And if you want to get in touch with all of us, you can do that via Twitter at yellowwallpot and read our written content on yellowwallpot.com. If you want to download the show in one way or another, you can do that via iTunes, Stitcher and SoundCloud and or subscribe i guess and if you want to support the show financially and uh, yeah make us have better equipment software and maybe a little bit more time as well then you can do that on patreon.com slash the yellow wall so uh yeah please chip in it's always much appreciated and uh yeah with that i guess until next week although it's an international 
break coming up, we of course have to still preview that match against Freiburg and maybe the things that happen until deadline day, we will see. Anywho, that was episode 197. Thank you, Lars and Konstantin, for being here with me again. And thank you for listening. Until next week, goodbye.